For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of worth. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? As I say at the beginning of every show, there's always something to celebrate if we take the time to do so. And today we are on the eve of Judy Garland's 100th birthday. And those of you who have been following the show know that all this month I've been celebrating the one and only Judy Garland. And as we've been doing all this month, we're going to start today with our tribute to Judy Garland, and then you'll meet our very special guest star on the other side of this incredible montage. Here she is, Judy Garland. Dear, when you smiled at me, I heard a melody. It haunted me from the start. Something inside of me started a symphony. Sing when the strings of my heart was like a breath of spring I heard a robin sing about a nest set apart all nature seemed to be in perfect harmony sing when the strings of my heart your eyes made sky seem Again, what else could I do again? But keep repeating through and through, I love you, love. I still recall the thrill. I guess I always will. I hope we'll never depart. Dear, with your lips to mine, oh, brassity divine. Sing when the strings of my I seem blue again What else could I do again But keep repeating Through and through I love you, love you I still recall a thrill I guess I always will I hope to will never depart Dear, with your lips to mine Oh, perhaps a deed of Come on. 
my very special guest star today, Elliot Fars. I am so thrilled that you are here, and normally you are on the other side of the microphone. I do, uh, and I am, and thank you so much. And first of all, thank you for all that you do to keep so much of this alive. I know you're such a fan of uh, the the classic musicals and the classic stars, and you've done such a great job in, in keeping their spirit around. Well, thank you for saying that, and you're one to talk. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, we both uh, let's uh, we are neighbors practically. We both live here in Rockland County. Uh, you do so much for Arts Rock, so thank you for that. Uh, and you keep that torch uh, burning. And uh, you're doing a lot of work right now, which we're going to delve into in just a moment. Uh, I want to let everyone know that our uh, word of the day every day, uh, Elliot. I have a word of the day, and the word I chose for today is teamwork, uh, because this is not done alone. And by the way, you look great. Uh, yeah. I know that you and I have been on this. Uh, 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 someone's trying to reach me right now. Uh, <laughs> let's get rid of that. Uh, I have a new iPhone, and it uh, goes off uh, with all these spam calls. Uh, maybe it's Judy calling. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, you look great. Uh, Thank you. Uh, so, um the word of the day is teamwork, uh, and we'll I'll figure out whatever the giveaway will be at the end of the show. Uh, so respond with your comments with the word teamwork. Uh, I want to first of all begin by asking you, who or what are you celebrating today? Uh, well, I, I mentioned briefly to you uh, uh, just before we went live that uh, my uh, my father went into the hospital recently and he's 94 years old. He has a birthday in a couple of weeks and he's uh, never really had a serious day in the hospital uh, in his life. Really, he's fallen a couple of times and broke a couple of things, but uh, not not something that could really be key, key to old age. He's been walking a mile uh or two every single day. Uh, my mom passed away 10 years ago. He's been dating and still has a girlfriend. So uh, today my mind is very much on my father. He seems to be very stable and uh, he, he may get out of the hospital today, but he's been a real inspiration. And frankly, me and my mom uh, were involved in a community theater in West Texas where I grew up. And I would not be here doing any of my stuff in show business if my parents hadn't introduced introduced me to the theater at a very young age. So for all sorts of reasons, I'm thinking about my dad today. Well, uh, and what's your dad's name? Norman. Norman Gould. Norman, we dedicate this show to you today. Uh, Beautiful. So that's great. Uh, I Well, I always go back uh, to the five-year-old self anyway with most of my shows because that five-year-old self to me is the purest self uh, before life uh, uh, begins to put these layers on you as to who you should be or who you shouldn't be uh, and peer pressure and teachers and all of that that comes with it. Uh, and what was your life like? I know you grew up in Texas. Uh, were the arts very much an important part of your growing up? Yeah, uh, to really understand, I, you know, I've sort of felt like I've been a fish out of water my whole life, Richard. And and that is, is that my parents were, uh, I'm only second generation in this country. My parents, very, my grandparents, very typical, all came from Eastern Europe, European, Eastern European Jews that came through Ellis Island and lived on the Lower East Side in Brooklyn. And then my parents uh, moved from Brooklyn to Texas. 
So uh, there, here were these Brooklyn Jews raising kids in West Texas, and I was the only Jewish person in my high school. And uh, so it it was always a little odd, you know. I always felt a little a little bit different than uh, than most of the uh, cowboys that I grew up around in Texas. So. Um, uh, and I, as I said, my parents were involved in the local community theater. They took us to music. We had we had Broadway show albums. There were classical music albums around everywhere. So the arts were all very much a part of it. I have a picture I quite cherish of my grandfather, Irving, Irving Goldstein. It doesn't get more Jewish than that. And, and by the way, do you ever hear, they're not going to name kids Irving anymore. Irving's perfect for a grandfather, but uh, I, I, you, know, you, know, you just can't even imagine a baby Irving anymore. <laughs> but I have a picture of my grandfather Irving. I think he was a teenager playing the violin. So um, uh, music and the arts were always stressed uh, as something to be a part of your life. My father was, up until recently, a very active optometrist. So I'm not sure they thought that I any of us would make a living out of it. And frankly, they were a little skeptical about being able to make a living out of it. Uh, but, you know, once I really started to get busy and active and make money, and especially when I started hosting Breakfast with the Arts on A&E television, you know, I couldn't have bigger supporters uh, of me and the work and, and, and believing that I could make a living in the arts than my parents. So, yeah, it was always a part of my life. Well, what were the first outlets for you uh, growing up in Texas? Uh, was it uh, like it is for most kids, uh, arts in school, uh, music programs, uh, after school programs? Where did it begin for you? It's a good question. It's interesting that uh, I, I was in the band uh, in junior high um, and, and in high school. But while there was a very active theater uh, aspect to our high school, there this community theater that I mentioned, uh, was uh, quite professional, and in, in in my opinion, certainly the way we were doing it. So uh, I got involved when I was fourteen uh, in the local community theater, both with adult shows and then with children's shows. And um, and uh, there were uh, there was a, a children's theater group called the Pickwick Players. And it was headed up by Ed Grasick. And Ed Grasick, as uh, it may ring a bell for some people, in that Ed, uh, while he uh, prior, um, while he was our theater director, after he had left this children's theater company in West Texas, went on to write "Come Back to the Five and Dime," Jimmy Dean, Jimmy right. Dean went on Broadway. So this was this was all well before uh, uh, he had uh, had Broadway fame and and wrote for adults. He was writing for kids and directing kids. So here was this real man of the theater, and I was young. I was 14 and 15. My first exposure was this man who was great director, great designer, great designer, could paint sets. I watched people do it, watched him do it. And, and then he started writing shows for us as kids. And so it was my idea that when you're in the theater, you do everything. And it was a little surprising later on when my kids got involved and it's like, oh, no, we'll build the sets for you. We'll build the costumes for you. It's like, aren't you supposed to do everything? So um, that was my first exposure was this really broad ranging exposure to original works. And I was, you know, at the beginning, still 14, 15 years old. So at what point did it happen for you when you said, hey, I think I could have a career at this? Uh, that was last week. Um... <laughs> I'm still waiting. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 at what point did I really believe I was making a living out of it? Well, you know, um, 
My first paid job was at a gas station in West Texas. And the honest to God truth, Richard, was it was disgusting and nasty and hot in West Texas. And it's like, I need something with air conditioning. So uh, I got a job on the radio. I was 17, uh, my second job, because I knew some people who had a radio station. And I said, like, you guys don't need anybody, do you? And they were like, yeah, we're looking for an overnight announcer. And at that point, it was really live. So um I, I was live on the radio from midnight to six. And uh, and once I had a taste of broadcasting, I never thought that would be my life. And here I've made a career both in radio and television for 30 or 40 or more years. Uh, I really thought that I would really be in the theater. And, and the majority of my life, I've made a living as a broadcaster. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, along the way, it just started to pay better than the theater. And only in the last 15 years have I come back as a producer and a director in a much bigger way than I've ever anticipated, frankly. But uh, when did I believe I could make a living at all this? Like I said, I, I'm, st I'm still not sure. Well, it, it, it's constant. anybody who's in this business knows that it's constantly changing and it can change on a dime. Uh, anything can change on a dime. I went to see Mary Lou Henner last night uh, at uh, Feinstein's. We're going to get oh. to Feinstein in a moment. Yeah. Brilliant, 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 brilliant show. And she was in uh, the original, the very original Grease uh, in Chicago. And when they told her that they were thinking of moving the show to New York, she said, this show is gritty. It's all about Chicagoans. Uh, it's never going to uh, make it in New York. Uh, this is not going to happen. Not only did she not go to New York with the show, uh, but when she had the chance to invest in the show, she said, no way. <laughs> and she said, I'm still kicking myself over that one. So uh, so take those chances, everybody. You never know what's going to come your way. So how did the move to New York happen for you? So um, I uh, left Midland and got went to get my degree at the University of Texas in Austin uh, in theater. I have a Bachelor of Arts in theater from UT Austin and then was not quite ready to come to New York. And I thought, you know, um, either L.A. or New York, but I wasn't ready. And a friend of mine had a theater company in Kansas City, Missouri. And so after college, I moved to Kansas City. I was there about 18 months it changed my life in a lot of ways, both as a broadcaster, particularly in classical music. And also I continued to do theater. And then I met a group of friends that turned out to be more lifelong friends than many of the people I met in college. Um, so uh, after about 18 months in, um, in Kansas City, I, I actually remember the phone call. I was on a phone call with a friend of mine at Juilliard. He was in New York and I was on the radio in Kansas City, Missouri. Again, I'd only been there 18 months. And, and, uh, and a bunch of my friends have moved to New York. And I literally thought, if I don't move now, I'm going to get way too comfortable and it's never going to happen. I didn't have a job. I didn't really have any prospects. I just went, I'm quitting Kansas City. I'm quitting the radio here. I'm moving to New York City. I moved in with my aunt into her basement uh, where I was out in Canarsie for a while and then moved in with some friends. But uh, it was literally, uh, it's time to go. And then I came to New York and that was 80, 80, 81, something like that. Uh, I came to New York in 1979. 
Yeah. So it was a very different New York that both of us came to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a I, very different New York. And, you know, and there was something, though, that was magical about those. I, I refer to them as the hunger years. Uh, at least they were for sure. Oh, no, sure. I was temping and filing and making $5 an hour. You know, do you remember bells are ringing? This came up. Recently. I worked for the Green Room Answering Service. Do you remember those? Yeah. yeah. Oh. A, I, I almost, I, I I got uh, almost got fired because I thought that I was really Ella Peterson, and I delivered uh, <laughs> I delivered a, a, a Danish and coffee uh, to Robert Lapone's apartment <laughs> at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, he said, I, "I'd like a wake up call," and I said, "Would you like coffee and a Danish with that?" And he said, "Yes." Are, are you serious? And I said, "Yes, I'll, I'll bring you the coffee and Danish," and I did. And he my told, God. You you know, I know Bobby. I I, uh, I met yeah. him a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't seen the new Joe Papp documentary on American Masters, I haven't I released on PBS. There's a clip with Bobby in it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really great. But he um, he called to thank them for such great service. And my boss called me into the office. He says, "Don't you ever do that again?" <laughs> That's too funny. Good for you. Oh, yes, but I he but I went to Bobby Lamont. To deliver this. So anyway, I want to moving ahead with you know everything that I want to talk uh, specifically about two projects that you're working on, uh, bringing us up to date, and uh, specifically because we are celebrating Judy Garland. Um, I want to begin by asking, what does Judy Garland mean to you? Before we even talk about the project that you've been working on and that you've been working so. Uh, diligently, we talked about this last summer when we ran into each other. Um, but what what are your earliest memories of becoming aware of Judy Garland, uh, whether it be the myth or the legend of Judy? Yeah, um, uh, I um, one of my best friends, and I was just with him yesterday. I went to see Mister Saturday Night last uh, yesterday, the matinee, and I took my friend Douglas McGrath, who who wrote the book to beautiful uh the carol king broadway show and he wrote and directed the gwyneth paltrow version of emma we've known each other since we were 14. he also grew up in west texas mm -hmm. in my little small midland town and he and i would go to the movies a great deal and i have also a very distinct memory of going to see that's entertainment uh, with him uh, as a kid when it first came out in the 70s on a big screen. And we're just sitting there watching this thing going, you know, I, I, he's had really a remarkable career. I guess we both have. But, um, you know, I, I don't think at that point I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew this was the world I wanted to be in. Mm -hmm. And uh, seeing that's entertainment on the big screen and then being, you know, a bit of an aficionado of The Wizard of Oz, you know, really knowing every little detail and knowing the scenes that were cut and the little cues that are left over still in the film mm -hmm. that people have. It's just like, I prided myself on all of that, you know? And so, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz clearly was, was huge to me. And I also have this memory and it just came back to me that uh, we had watched the Wizard of Oz. I was a kid. I was sent home. I was sent to bed. My mom was playing Mahjong with friends or bridge. I don't know what it was. And I came out and I was very little and I said, oh, I, I can't sleep. I was I was dreaming of the witch. 
And, uh, and I just gotten a new bike and my mom said, go back to bed and dream about your new bicycle. So I went back to bed and I started to think about my new bicycle. And all of a sudden I could see the witch following me on, <laughs> on her broomstick above me on my bicycle. I remember all of this. And, um, so Judy Garland has, uh, was always about that. And then learning about her troubles and, uh, and then I got to meet Liza many years later, uh, at a radio thing, um, and so, uh, you know, I think she's she's kind of the the really centerpiece of MGM and those great those great musicals, and just uh, became a bit of a myth and a legend, as well as a talent that I always followed. And and I know we're getting there, but then when I got the call from Michael Feinstein to make this show with him, it, it, it was just it's just it was all been a joy. How did the call happen? Uh, I mean, Michael obviously knows your work, but. Uh, was there a particular connection with why he wanted you specifically for this project? It really came, I've known Michael for probably 30 years. Uh, I think we met on the radio when he was a guest on mine at WNCN, which you know went off the air in 83 or something. So I've known Michael a long time. And um, as I started to, you know, just to back up a little bit, I started to produce and direct large scale visual uh, components to symphony concerts. The very first one out of this entire series was in 2005 at the Hollywood Bowl. I started at the Hollywood Bowl. So I got a call from a friend of mine to co-produce, and I ended up taking the lead on a concert with the LA Philharmonic, uh, the, um, with the LA Phil, uh, conducted by John Mauchery, and we did this big Wagner concert. This is all on my website at elliotforest.com. There's pictures. Um, so it was very visual, and I thought, this is a world. This is a way for me to take this 25 and 30 year broadcast career in classical music and combine it with my my real training in the theater and say, look, why don't we add more visual elements to symphony concerts? Mm -hmm. You know, when I started doing this in 2005 or so, for the most part, it was mostly white males walking on stage at symphony concerts in white light playing and leaving. You know, that's a bit different now. You'll see lighting, you'll see orchestras playing to symphony, playing to movies and that sort of thing. So, um, so uh, I had been having conversations uh, with Michael about the work that I was doing, and it really came about one night I'd gone to Feinstein's and he was performing and I knew he was a collector. I knew he had lots of stuff. You know, he's got pictures and memorabilia and he's got sheet music and he's doing his show. And I have another whole nother show in my head that I could be seeing. And like he's mentioning, you know, celebrities he knows and sheet music and stories. And it's like, what if we could see that? So we had been having conversations about uh, adding a visual component to his shows for some time, and we weren't sure exactly what it was going to be. And then finally, we'd had a couple of lunches, and finally, um, he 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 said, "We got an idea." He and his husband Terrence mm -hmm. came to me and said, uh, "I think we I think this is a couple of years ago. I think I know what we want to do. We want to celebrate Judy Garland's." 100th birthday, which is coming up, and uh, we'll do a whole Judy Garland show with with large scale visuals, and um, and we want you to produce it. So uh, you know, it started with me pitching an idea of adding visual stuff, them mulling over what might work, and then we ended up on this project. Now there are two different shows, am I correct? Um, or uh, he did it two different parts at uh, Feinstein's because it's so massive. <laughs> the movie years and the concert years. Am I correct? You are. I hope I'm not telling tales out of school, but I think that's what your show is for. 
So no, uh, no, no. Well, we did end up in People Magazine yesterday. Everybody, go read it because oh, really? Do tell of a bombshell that was dropped on the show recently. But that's uh, not what I'm looking for. All uh, right, go. So um, we had decided to do uh, the original concept uh, was what what's on tour, which is currently on tour, which is a full evening, and the first act is the early Judy Garland, uh, Gum Sisters, uh, Wizard of Oz, uh, early movies. And then the second half is sort of focused on the concert years. So that was the entire concept. And that's what's on tour right now. And it'll happen again soon. And that's where they are. So uh, I, you know, you and I are in Rockland County. And, you know, I produce shows in my own community. So uh, I don't even think Michael knows this. But uh, when I, I said to him, as we're developing the show, I, I really think we should do a run out. I think we need to do this in front of an audience. I think we need to test drive it a little bit, thinking I'd bring him to my community here in Rockland County. And he goes, totally agree. We should do we should do something a little off the radar and we'll get it developed and it'll help us in the development. I went, great. And so the next thing I knew, they booked us for two weeks at Feinstein's 54 Below, which is- You're off the radar. This is off the radar. And I'm like- <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's like, okay, uh, it, however you want to do it. So um, again, I never really was uh, uh, quite, I'm not sure I've really told this story in public, but I said, so, so those are hour long shows. What are we going to do? And the first idea was, well, we'll do a truncated show of what we've been developing. And then I said, and in his apartment talking about this, I said, we're going to do a third show that's a truncated version of a show we haven't even created yet that's longer. And it was actually my idea where I said, look, why don't we do a week of the first act and then the second week, because we had a two week run, the second week we'll do the second act. And they were like, that's great. We'll market it that way. If you enjoyed the, the early years, come back next week and see the other one. So that's what we ended up doing. We did two weeks and, and we were able to really, you know, develop the show. We were able to really spend time on that first act and it made a lot of changes and it made a lot of adjustments. And then the whole next week we did the second half and the same thing again. So it worked out really well. And, um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, there we were, you know, in this basement, uh, but it worked out really well. So getting back to the word of uh, teamwork, uh, you and Michael, he, he has such a knowledge. And of course, his uh, incredible connection with Liza and wanting to respect uh, her legacy, uh, having new generations hear this music. And not necessarily just hearing the music uh, as it was just done then, but hearing it through new eyes and ears now uh, and presenting it to a new generation. Uh, that's his goal also, uh, knowing Michael and his work. Uh, and then you've got the other element, and that's John Fricke uh, with all the great... I've got his book right here. Uh, you know, all, I've got all of his books, but... Uh, Me too. Uh, Let's deal with the 20% off sticker. <laughs> uh, I paid full price, John, if you're watching. Um, but, uh, it, uh, but with all of um, these elements coming together, uh, let's first of all talk uh, with about Michael and the music and all of this music. Uh, as a producer, I'm sure that Michael knows what he wants to present. 
what input do you bring in as a producer uh, in terms of what is going to work and what you think might not work and how do you shape the show? Uh, yeah. Um, it was, you know, it definitely is word of the day. It was teamwork. Uh, it was really great uh, working with John and uh, Fricky and, and uh, also Terrence and Ted Firth, our musical director, uh, as well as Michael. I mean, I think it started, uh, I, 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 I think the most, uh, the seminal moment was really a, a Zoom call because we were dealing with so much of that during the pandemic. And I said to Michael, what's the story you want to tell? And I literally, I just, he just sort of like from his heart, from his subconscious, from his mind, just started to say, here's how I see the show happening. Here's the first act. And he laid out these ideas and I took copious notes and, uh, and then he went, and that's how I see the first act. And then the second act. And, you know, this whole thing maybe took an hour for him to just talk through it. And um, I'm glad I, took notes and didn't just listen and just went, okay, I refined that conversation into an outline and gave it back to him and said, is this what you want to do? And at that point, we were able to determine what pictures and video we were going to use, what we were going to get the rights to. Um, there were some very special moments in our piece, in our concert with him that he had that no one would have. He tells this story of going over to Judy Garland's house at some point after she had gone. And he says he's drawn to this wall. Do you know this story? Have you heard this? No, no. He's drawn to this wall and and he feels like something's there. And it turned out to be a secret opening. And he opens it up and he finds all these records. You know, it's well documented that Judy would record um, herself singing. And so he had a couple of uh, recordings that he didn't know exactly what it was, but he had them transferred. So it, I think she's 18 at one point and, uh, and she sings, I'll be seeing you and all, um, which she's, she never recorded. So here's this acapella thing that she's singing that we've now transferred and he sits down and plays. Uh, he accompanies Judy. Uh, while she sings this and we play this recording, which, you know, no one has. And uh, and it's beautiful to have, you know, in a way, it's a dream come true. Michael gets to accompany her. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. So he knew he wanted to do that. Um, we 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 needed to get the rights to a couple of things. Um, I think. Um, she went on the Bob Hope television a radio show called command performance and uh and then it was evidently shot on it looked like film not even on um what was it when they used to shoot a film of television shows what was that called um a kinescope yeah i don't think it was that i actually think there were cameras there and so she's like 24 years old she's on the bob hope show she sings over the rainbow right and there's um, a version we got from the Library of Congress because he's Michael Feinstein. He's friendly with the mm -hmm. Library of Congress. So we get a great copy of that. And so we show that, you know, because it was like, uh, hey, Michael, are you going to sing over the rainbow? And it's like, no, Judy's going to sing over the rainbow. I'm not doing I'm not going to I'm not going to compete with Judy. So um, so we just had all these elements. And then John Fricke, as you know, is. Uh, an amazing archivist and historian. He is the guy when it comes. He's the to, guy when yeah. it comes to the history of Judy Garland. My favorite story, and I think I told you this, was that uh, 
I'm looking at all of his books. I ordered them right away. I got all of his books and it's like, it has everything that we need. And I'm like, do you have these pictures? And he goes, yeah. And, and I said, do you have the rights for us to use them? And he went, yeah, for the most part. And, uh, and then I said, yeah, well, (laughs) look also between you and me, I call up Michael's husband, Terrence and go, I'm not your legal guy. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you, you, you take care of the, the rights part. Um, and um, so I say to John, uh, can you just put them all in a Dropbox? And he's like, oh, I don't have it digitized. And I was like, oh, I go, yeah, he goes, I, I just have all the pictures and posters and memorabilia and it's all this stuff. So we had this great experience where I'd drive by his apartment in my car and he'd come outside and he'd give me a big bag of stuff. And it was like a drug dealer in a way. Okay. <laughs> and he'd give me a big bag of stuff and I'd take it home and I'd digitize it. And then I'd bring him the bag back and he'd give me another one. And we did this, I don't know, a dozen times, you know, and I'm opening up the bag and it's, it's not a copy of the program from Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. It's a program. original. Yes. Yeah. It's a program from, uh, from that. And and so, you know, I've amassed what I believe to be the largest digitized collection of Judy Garland memorabilia, probably anywhere, because it's basically Fricky's collection. And um, so that from that, I was able to figure out what I was going to put on the screen and what I was going to put on the state uh, um, on uh, on the screen and how that was going to be used and how often things should change and when it should stay static. And, you know, when I move things around. So, um, you know, and it's so my job is part filmmaker um, as well as uh, stage producer. And um, and I have some theories about all of this. When you start doing large scale images and projection and video in front of or behind a live person, I never want the audience to forget that that there's a live person there. Exactly. You know, I, 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 I never you know, I've heard it many times. People are afraid. And the word that comes up is distracting. I hear that word, I understand it, and I appreciate it, you know, but also the work that I've done when I do visuals for an orchestra and I put up, you know, a 26-foot LED screen above the Philadelphia Orchestra, I don't want the audience to forget there's 118 live real players there. So I like the orchestra. I've seen too many of these where some of my, um, the people who do the same work, they'll just turn the lights out on the orchestra and it's like, they're, you know, they could just go to a movie if that were the case, you know. So I'm very conscious to, to, to and it's also my theater training. It's like there's a, there's a thing here. There, there's a synergy here between the live person and, and Michael refers to it. You know, he, 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 he points to Judy and, you know, he connects to the audience. I know we'll probably get to it, but I've been on tour with Itzhak Perlman, the great violinist for the last. Yeah, I want to talk about that as well. So but we had a similar, you know, conversation about how to interact with the um, with the with the images. So you're doing a a lot of work uh, with Itzhak Perlman as well. You just got back. Uh, uh, When do you go on the road again? We did five shows. We developed the show just in time for COVID. And uh, we did five shows pre-COVID, and then we shut down for two years. And then we just did 10 more shows. We went back out on tour in January. Between January and May, we did 10 shows. And then we've got another 
another whole batch book starting in January. It's uh, I've never really been on tour this much. This is all really uh, a bit new to me. Do you like being on tour? Oh, very much. Oh, no, I adore it. It's great fun. I mean, and also it's Perlman. It's like he picks mm -hmm. the best. It took me a while to figure out what was going on, Richard. I was like looking at this after a while going, wait, we're all in January and February. We're always in Arizona and San Diego and California. Oh, he books the warm places. Of course, of course. This guy, this guy knows what he's doing. I just never thought about it. I just figured we go to a place wherever it's available. But no, we're going to the warm places in the winter. So I love that. And, and he's warming. I want to tell everyone a little bit about Arts Rock and the work that you're doing with that as well. So how did that come about and, you know, and what's coming up uh, with you? And we can give a little plug if we if you don't mind. Yeah, well, this uh, is coming full circle. These uh, days that are coming up. Yeah, you're, this is coming full circle and you're, you should take a huge, uh, you're responsible for a big piece of this. But as you know, in our community in Rockland County, for those around the country, it's just outside New York City. We're above New Jersey and um, very much an artistic community, community historically. Uh, recently, Rosie O'Donnell lived here and Jonathan Demme. Historically, uh, Helen Hayes lived here and um, Lada Lania and, uh, and her husband. Kurt Vile lived here. So, you know, the idea that we're less than an hour of now outside of New York City and there's like, okay, Times Square is 45 minutes from here, but I got deer in my backyard has attracted artists for century, for more than a century. So, um, uh, as you know, there was a Helen Hayes Theater in the heart of our town for a long time. It was mm. open and active for a long time. And uh, I got involved because my kids came home and said they're closing the theater. And this is probably 19 years ago. And, uh, and I went, well, we can't close it. I know, I know. And um, so um, I, I got involved and um, I was able to take a lead on helping it be open for another four years. And then when, uh, when, it, when it closed after four years as River Space from Helen Hayes to River Space, you know, we were already programming. We were doing conversations and music and, and theater. And so I had a board and it's just like, well, maybe we should keep it going. And I wasn't alone. I've been the executive artistic director, but there's been a lot of people and we've had some great board members over the years. So we just decided to keep it all going and uh, be somewhat nomadic and uh, produce and direct in in churches and in schools and in that time um i brought up you know i basically programmed out of my rolodex uh, alec baldwin came up twice the great comedian lewis black robert klein was here uh i you know at one point we brought up uh, edward albee uh during that time period uh, which was an extremely memorable night um another one robert osborne i know your audience will be uh, uh, you know, if I if I'd videotaped that an evening with Robert Osborne to celebrate the 100th birthday of Gene Kelly, and mm. we did film clips. My favorite part of that night, if I can tell you a fun story, was that I curated all the clips, and it was the history of Gene Kelly chronologically, and I left out singing in the rain on purpose, on purpose, to save it for last. So we went chronologically through Gene Kelly and here's Robert Osborne and I've got notes and Robert Osborne is like, you know, off the top of his head. And I've, I've got things in front of me and goes, no, that was 1935, 1934. He's like, you know, he was brilliant. Right. Mm -hmm. We missed. 
So we get to the end of Gene Kelly's career, whatever it was, uh, Xanadu or whatever the clip was that was towards the end of his career. And I turned to Bob and I was like, so I guess we've covered everything. You could feel the audience. There was there was going to be a revolt. <laughs> like, why did we leave something out? And it was like, oh, oh, I think we do have one more clip. And then we did Singing in the Rain. But it was just, it was little, I was on purpose that I sort of like toyed with the audience a little bit. But it was just like, don't mess with Gene Kelly and Singing in the Rain. We're not getting out of here without you showing this. But it was a great night. What was Robert's uh, response to that? I mean, did he just, he must have loved it. Oh, I think he did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a charming man, uh, really lovely. And um, it was really lovely to get to know him a little bit and to uh, to, to pick his brain. And gr interesting history. I didn't know he was an actor. And we, you know, showed pictures from some of the movies he was in before he ended up doing what we know him as this expert on television. Uh, yeah, really charming guy. Uh, well, Carol Cook, who is a very dear friend of mine, who, by the way, is going, everyone who's watching, she's going to be here on the show on a very rare interview. She's going to be here on the 25th of July. And when she and Tom Troop, her husband, got married, Robert Osborne was their best man. Lucille Ball was the maid of honor. Oh, <laughs> wow. And, well, I don't uh, leave, this, leave this out here. So the, the Helen Hayes Theater is gone, but um, uh, you have taken a lead in uh, helping do a, a landmark status for the Helen Hayes home that's blocks from my house and probably blocks from your house. And it's going to be dedicated uh, this coming uh, October, right? And October um, weekend. Yeah, and there's some shows and events around that, and uh, the name of Helen Hayes will continue to be a part of our community uh, that yes. way. So it's great. So thank you for that. Well, uh, thank you for all that you do, and it's, you know it's important that we do. Uh, you know, I had a mentor, and I've talked about this in the past, and uh, and I think that's important, uh, and it's full circle here. Uh, that always taught me that every time you step on camera or uh, on stage, that you're carrying the mantle of all that have gone before you. And I think it's important that we continue to remember them. And I think it's so incredible. There's so many events that are going on around the country uh, tomorrow and uh, all this week, all this month. Uh, I could do uh, six months of Judy Garland and I still couldn't cover everything. Yeah. And I'm sure that that has been the experience with you and John Fricky and Michael Feinstein, with all the work that you're doing, um, how do you put everything into just a couple of nights? When I think of Judy Garland's life and career, and I'm sure you know the quotes, um, 47 years on this planet, uh, 27 motion pictures uh, at MGM uh, before I mean, between the ages of 13 and uh, 28, uh, she was worked to death, God bless her. Uh, and the amount of concerts, the albums, uh, the body of worth, as I refer to it, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that she left on this planet, uh, people that live twice that amount don't have that body of worth left behind. Yeah. It was uh, it was interesting. I mean, the, the most telling moment, Richard, was when we finished the two weeks at Feinstein's 54 Below and we had done uh, 
a full night of the first act and a full night of the second act. And it was either an hour or a little bit more in each case. It's like, okay, now we have to make a single 90 minute show out of it. You know, an hour, you know, with intermission, it can't be much longer than that. It's like, I left it to Michael. It's like, which of your children are we going to kill? It was really, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, you know, the, this is an age old question with the arts. It's like in some cases and in the life of Judy Garland, it's it's uh, it, there was so much to choose from. And it's like, I'm not going to make that choice. I mean, I can tell you what I think works and doesn't work. And, mm-hmm. and I think everything worked, but it was like what works and what may not work as, as much. Um, and we all had opinions. And so, you know, we made some cuts. We cut a song here and there, which meant some visual stuff we had created or, you know, are not going to be seen. Um, but um, yeah, we, we had to make that uh, decision. And, you know, the Judy Garland fans will have to decide whether leave them wanting more or, or, or staying too long is, is, is more important. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that you may or not I uh, have an answer for or be able to answer. Uh, but do you think this would ever be filmed for PBS or? You know, it's it's a really good question. Um, I think part of it has to do with some rights issues regarding film clips and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I'm dealing with the same tour I'm doing with with uh, Itzhak Perlman. Uh, uh, Mr. Perlman's first response was, why would I want to film it? Because I'm still doing it live. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and because it's in this in Perlman's case, it's his personal story. I think we'd be doing a disservice by not documenting it mm-hmm. uh, because he's telling his own story uh, about his life and growing up in Israel and his getting polio at five and his advocacy for people with disabilities. I just think it's a powerful story. And I think to have that documented. So I'm, I'm talking to people with his permission about videotaping it and doing it for PBS. Um, it hasn't come up with Michael. Um, I certainly would recommend it. Um, I, I, um, you know, I directed uh, an oratorio for PBS um, uh, based on the Matthew Shepard story. Considering Matthew Shepard, I directed for PBS and I'll be directing it again this summer um, for the first professional production in New York City. It's a beautiful work. It's only five years old. It's a beautiful, beautiful choral piece. And um, I don't think it, I know it didn't diminish by having it be on PBS first it it only spurred people to want to do the work around the world, not even just around the country. The idea that other countries would retell the Matthew Shepard story in music uh, has been gratifying. And, and I don't think it diminishes that. I think we're in a different world now. You know, there is a, a school of thought comedians, particularly, Oh, I can't, I can't do this bit, you know, on television because then I can't do it live anymore. Uh, but, um, but we'll see. It's a good question. We really haven't discussed it. Well, we're going to give away uh, a Judy item, uh, and I'll decide what that's going to be. Uh, but uh, w- while we're doing this, I've got some uh, wind-down questions. And the first question that I always ask is a surprise question. I don't even know what it is before oh. I ask it. And it's, uh, have you had your 15 minutes of fame yet? <laughs> <laughs> is this from an audience member? Uh, no, that's. Uh, I have these uh, question cards. Oh. I love this card. Have you had your 15 minutes of fame yet? I think uh, we're having it now. Well, uh, I don't know whether you know this or not, but I was on the Gong Show when I was uh, 19, the original Gong Show uh, with Chuck Barris. Uh, who I lived was, you in Rockland County. Uh, who, who lived here. I'm not sure I knew that. Is that right? 
uh, he lived in Sneed's Landing. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Danny, my husband, uh, uh, was uh, his landscape architect. Oh, funny. I didn't know that. So I was a teenager. I was on the original show. Um, uh, I got gonged. And uh, then uh, the first day of college, they called me up and said, we want you back for the new nighttime version. Uh, Trivia question, who hosted the nighttime version? Do you remember? Chuck Barris didn't host the nighttime version. I have a guess, but I may be wrong. What's your guess? Uh, Pat Sajak. No, Gary Owens. Gary Owens, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So then I, they flew me out and I was on. So let me consider twice on the gong show is my 15 minutes of fame. Okay, that's great. <laughs> uh, uh, do you do things now or later? Uh, I, uh, is both acceptable? Um, yes. I, yeah, I, uh, I put out the fire in front of me and, uh, and, uh, yeah, let's just say both. Okay. Uh, when were you most and last, at uh, least selfish in your profession? Uh, most and least selfish in my profession. Wow. Wow. Uh, hmm. Wow. Um, least selfish. I try to share the stage whenever I can, uh, and the and the credit and the you know uh, this oratorio is beautifully written by the composer. I don't take credit for that. Um, uh, maybe most selfish, I guess, because I host so many things that I'm on stage that I you know I I mean I, I try to keep things rolling. I never try to make it too much about me, but at some point when you walk on stage, people expect you to, for it to be about you. So uh, I guess there's always a moment for me. Especially early on, I learned how to get a laugh, and uh, and I like I like that. I like I like getting a laugh. So maybe that's a little selfish. I don't know. Uh, not much more coming. Giving, no, I think that's giving. If you give it to the audience and you get them, uh, I I don't I, th- I don't think that's selfish at all. Yeah. Go for the laugh. Yeah. Um, what initially interested you in this profession? The. Um, the spark that happened for me, Richard, was uh, I had this silly, silly idea that um, between freshman and sophomore year of college, I was about, I had a, in freshman year, I had a teacher at, in college go, you're not an actor. And it's like, okay, I guess we can cross that off the list. And uh, again, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So, um, but it, so it was painful, but I, I, it didn't let, it didn't stop me. So I thought I would enroll in directing classes, uh, which I turned out loving and really set the course for the rest of my life. But prior, so in between those, that freshman and sophomore year, before the directing class, I had the um, the hubris to think, I know, I'll direct a musical before I take directing classes. So I'll have something to refer back to. So I'll have a project that I'll go, oh, maybe I could have done this or that. That was literally the entire idea. So I'm 19 years old. I walk into a bank. I'm not asking for a loan. I, I'm. They should sponsor me. They should just give me money to do a musical. And they did. And so I raised a bunch of money and I directed Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, I was 19 years old. And basically, I've been doing the same thing for the last you know 50 years. But the lesson there, the real lesson, Richard, was is that I stood back. I wasn't on stage myself at all. I had directed it. I produced it. I raised the money. We had a thousand people over two nights, 500 people a night come and see the show outdoors in front of a gazebo. All my friends were in it. And I thought, this is a thing. I made a hat. You know, I created a thing that didn't exist before. And I have, uh, you know, what Jewish people call nachas. I had the pride. Yeah. yeah 
of, of like going, I'm not on stage. It's not about me. No one is seeing me or knowing my name, but I made this thing happen. And it's like, uh, this is what I want to do. I want to do this. This is what I want to do. So that's, uh, that was that. That's wonderful. I love that. Um, what are you most proud of from this past week? <laughs> this last week? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, my colleagues, many classical music people, and frankly, folk uh, music people know, know the name Robert Sherman. Uh, Robert Sherman yes. has been on the radio. Uh, he turned 90 uh, this last week, or we celebrated his 90th birthday in the green space, our performance space. And we haven't even talked about my radio life, but at Q WQXR. Here, wait. Oh, this is uh, my main gig here. Um, so we have this performance space in New York City with WNYC and WQXR. And uh, so we had a 90th birthday for for Bob Sherman. And uh, in classical music world, it was a who's who. We had Joshua Bell, the Emerson String Quartet, Ursula Oppens. Uh, it, it was uh, Chi Yun. We had this amazing group of people come play. And Peter Shickley, Professor Peter Shickley of PDQ Bach fame was there. And so I was part of it and I was called on stage just to say a few words about Bob and, and what a mentor he's been and what I've learned from someone uh, like Bob who spent his entire life really encouraging young people, particularly in classical music as well as folk music. And, you know, when I started this classical music thing, it was mostly older white guys, you know, when you think of Herbert von Karajan and Bernstein. And so the idea that there's the, the world of classical music is so diverse right now and a lot of young people and Bob Sherman should take credit for that. So it was an honor. It was, I was proud to be on stage and say nice things about him. That's wonderful. Um, have you ever been envious of anyone in this profession? Oh, yes. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> I just leave it at yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll leave it at yes. Okay. Uh, what is the uh, highest thing of, uh, of value in this business that you still want to attain? Wow. Uh, you know, I have... Uh... It's funny, I crossed a little Rubicon a couple of years ago where it, uh, I was having some conversations uh, with one of my uh, college buddies who is uh, an executive at the Public Theater about doing radio dramas um, on, on the, on, at uh, New York Public Radio. And it's just like it's the Public Theater and Public Radio. These two ought to get together. Mm. So we did. And it uh, it happened actually just as the pandemic was starting. I, I had called him back up and I said, look, are we going to do this even though there's a pandemic? And he said, your timing is good. We're about to cancel. I got emotional. We're about to cancel Shakespeare in the Park for the first time in 58 years. Mm. Here, here I just saw this new documentary about Joe Papp this morning that's on PBS. And it's like, we can't make that. We can't have that happen. We can't have uh, Joe Papp's vision of free Shakespeare in the park, have a, have a blank space for this particular year. And I said, uh, well, why don't we do it on the radio? And so we ended up, they hired everyone back, including Estelle Parsons and all these people that were supposed to be in the Delacorte. And we recorded it. We did it on the radio. And, um, and, and, and then we aired it and it was a really big success and we did another one too. So uh, the fact that actually, if you go to the website right now at the public theater and you look up Richard II, it says executive producer, Elliot Forrest, it's like, I'm done. 
I'm <laughs> happy. I I have my title on the uh, uh, at the public theater, which is the pinnacle for anyone in the theater for me, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm not sure if I can do any more than that. But when I think about my highest achievement and what I can go beyond executive producing a show at the public theater, uh, I'm not sure there is a better one. Well, I'm sure there's more, but that's incredible. Uh, I have a calendar on my desk and I pull passages from this uh, from time to time for this show. And this is one that I pulled for today. And it, very important, especially nowadays, supporting others in a balanced way is how I keep from becoming drained and allow, I my, uh, allow myself to enjoy the process of giving. So today's self-love action, and this is for everyone watching, let me check in with my reserves of love is the symbolic cup in my heart, which represents my reserves as far as giving to others full or nearly empty. I'll adjust my actions with others accordingly. So is your cup nearly full or empty? No, I, I, I believe strongly in this. And look, I don't, I don't, yeah. I mean, when you do it, you do it because it feels right. But you know, we have a lot of interns. We have a, at New York Public Radio, and um, I always take time to, to be with them and answer any questions that they have. I, you know, I I believe that um, uh, you know, as they say, the cemetery is filled with people who are think who think they're irreplaceable. And uh, you know, uh, when I was younger, uh, Richard, and they said, "Oh, time goes by so quickly." It's, uh, you know, I just got my Medicare card, which is uh, unbelievable to me. I don't even, I, it's like, un, I can't even, it's crazy to me. So, you know, uh, I, it, for the, I never give, gave a lot of thought about, you know, the support of other people as a major part of my life. But you think more about that the older you get and, and the fact that it's actually your responsibility to not only support these people, but at some point to step aside. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I think all of that's true. Absolutely. Um, what does Judy Garland mean to you? I think she's a cautionary tale, actually, you know, um, I think that, that uh, there's there's this she was in this incredible talent, but I also see her in different clips and 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 um, makes me sad how she was manipulated, you know, and, and how she was used for other people's purposes and not really her health, her mental health, her physical health were really paramount to people. They were willing at, at that time period and probably still to toss people aside pretty quickly. So. Um, I think I think about that. I think that um, I think we need to not only celebrate her talent, but uh, remember how um, how much of a fighter she was, but also how how much other people took advantage to, took advantage of her, and how we should really keep an eye out that uh, keep an eye out for that for other people. And this is my last question: uh, What took energy away from you this week? And I'm sure that it's what you're going through today with your father. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Although, you know, the moment I found out he had a mild heart attack and congestive heart failure and was in the hospital, the next thing I know, I was backstage about to go on this thing at the 90th birthday backstage. He calls me on the phone and he sounded great. So, you know, he, he it took energy and he gave it back right away because he seems to be bouncing back pretty quickly. So, uh, um yeah, so I I think it's a little bit of that, but it's always give and take, and you know we we want to just uh, have our family members close to us and uh, make sure and hopefully they'll stay healthy.
Absolutely. Uh, we're going to do our giveaway now and don't go anywhere for a moment. Uh, okay. Here it is. Here's our giveaway. And we'll see who our winner is today. Uh, thank you all for being here, by the way. Uh, I don't know how many people are out there, but yeah, thank uh, you. So much. Tasha Lombardi. So Tasha reached me after the show. I'm actually rushing out because I'm having surgery in a uh, half an hour, believe it or not. I know. <laughs> Thinking about you. Oh, no, it's minor surgery. So uh, just a dental surgery, but uh, nothing to, uh, but uh, anyway, I'm going to pull these up here. Um, I want, I'm going to say a few words and then Elliot, I'm going to give you the final word for today. Um, I uh, use the word teamwork and uh, I, I, I have a team uh, that work with me, Glenn Charlotte. Uh, who is here, who does the graphics uh, for me. Uh, Jay, uh, Jarrett, who you sent to me, Elliot, who uh, did the Judy montage, uh, incredible work uh, that he does. Uh, uh, Tess LaBella, uh, Rose Apuzo, um, Lisa uh, Rodrigo, uh, Leo uh, Rodriguez, um, Zoeem in Bangladesh, who is my uh, YouTube manager. Uh, I don't do this alone. There's a team of people uh, that make this happen. And then all of you who show up and watch these shows and lift me up with your comments and your emails and checking in on me, uh, that's teamwork. And I think of you uh, also, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, the Julia on uh, HBO Max. Oh, not yet, no. But... There's an episode in which uh, one of her uh, dear friends, uh, played by B.B. Newworth, as soon as Julia Newworth, uh, uh, as soon as uh, Julia Child starts to get her fame, uh, PBS uh, fires her assistant, who's been there as a volunteer all this time. And she's, oh no, you can't fire her. She's a volunteer, first of all, <laughs> and she's family. And so I think of all of you as family. So it's more than teamwork, it's family. And so this word means so much to me and thank you for being here today. Uh, if this was your first time here, I hope that it won't be your, la your last. After today's show, please leave a comment on YouTube. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Share this with your friends. If you see that this concert uh, or Isdak Perwan is performing anywhere, Go and see these shows. There's nothing like being in an audience with other people and experiencing live theater. Uh, but there's also nothing like being in the comfort of your home, listening to Elliot on the radio or listening to a podcast. Uh, all of Elliot's information will be on YouTube as well. So please follow him, support what he's doing. Uh, keep in touch with both Elliot and myself. Uh, and uh, go out and do something nice for someone else. Uh, as I say at the end of my shows, go to your Facebook friends list and today reach out to the third name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Elliot, I want you to do the same thing. Okay. Third name and reach out with a phone call and let that person know what they mean to you. Because as my dear friends, uh, Sean Moniger always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. And one other thing I want you all to do tonight, regardless of what side you're on politically, listen to the hearings and make your own judgment based on what you hear. So, but pay attention. We all need to pay attention to what's going on right now and make your own judgment 
not based on what the media is telling you, but based on what you hear. So based on that, I'm going to leave. I'm going to give you the final word. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about today that you want to build upon, anything we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message, it's all yours. And when you say goodbye, the credits will roll. Thank you, Elliot. And you're welcome here anytime. Thank you. Richard, thank you so much. I just want to thank you for all the work that you do. You're such a treasure. You have such a warm and inviting spirit always. I want to thank you for having me to talk about uh, WQXR and Itzhak Perlman and my Judy Garland show with Michael Feinstein. And uh, I'd love to come back sometime. Take care. Bye-bye.